I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined as always by my trusty co-host, Taylor Sparks. And today, this is the first episode of year three, where we made it this far. Most podcasts don't even don't even make it past year one. You know, they get 10 episodes in and they just kind of falter, but somehow we've stayed consistent. So looking forward to a lot of many more years but this year we have a lot of new and exciting content that we're going to be bringing to the show full steam ahead man and you know what 2020 was the worst and i think we all have big expectations for 2021 to get better and what better way to kick it off than with some awesome new podcasts so we ourselves have set goals for ourselves to make even more awesome content for you guys and just a couple of teasers we've got some really cool things coming this year we have new sponsors we have new promotions and some really cool challenges for the people who uh, listen, actually, and some giveaways tied to those. We've landed some really big corporate interviews, as well as finally gotten around to tackling some of those massive subjects that you have all emailed, emailed us over and over and over for. I'm, I'm looking at you 3D printing. So that's all coming this year. Buckle up. It's going to be fantastic. Andrew, what do we have today? So today actually, we're going to Do be- you want to say anything else that we're doing in the new year? Yeah, you can also look forward to another Andrew and Jared spectacular episode. We have a really great topic that I think a lot of you are going to enjoy. So I'm looking forward to recording about it. Uh, but yeah, get ready. It's going to be a good year. A lot of, lot of new stuff for the podcast that's going to benefit you. But today we're going to be talking about ionic conduction and how we're able to move you know, particles through solids in a way that allows us to make them more functional and even generate energy and electricity from them. But it doesn't stop there. This is like a really awesome topic where the applications and the extensions just sort of keep going. Really, imagination's the limiter here. You know what was kicked this off was last month, QuantumScape, which we had talked about the month prior when we were talking to our investment friend uh, from Pangea Ventures. We had talked about QuantumScape as a uh, this company that's developing new battery tech. And then they did it. The next month, they released that they had cracked the code that they had figured out how to make the all solid state battery work, but not just the all solid state battery list, the anode list battery work, right? Normally, well, I guess we're going to dive into it, but it's big news coming out of the battery world right now. And then sure enough, like two days later, Toyota jumps up and says, hey, hey, we're doing it too. We're almost there. Plus we can manufacture. And so they might actually be the ones that get it to market a lot faster. And now I just have done some uh cruising through the news and Ford and BMW are all both saying that, you know, we're close behind that they've partnered with Denver company, solid power. And basically the whole world is all of a sudden talking about solid state batteries. So what on earth are these? And then what's the role that uh, ceramic ionic conductors play in these materials? Let's dive into it. All right. Before we dive into the really cool battery innovations and the role of ionic conductors, let's ask why on earth do you need an ionic conductor? Think of the AA battery that you got and you put in your Christmas toy, right, from this year. 
that battery, we know that it's about delivering electrical charge, right? It travels from one end to the other by going through your device and making your laser tags that light up as my kid learned, right? So if there's electrical motion, why on earth do we need ionic motion? Well, think about it. As you move electrons from one side of your battery over to the other, you're moving charge, negative charge from one side to the other. And if you just keep on doing this, it's gonna build up a negative charge on one side relative to the other. A difference in charge over a spatial difference is defined as a electric field. So if you did this, it would just build up a electric field which would repel future motion. So it would stop working as a battery. If you didn't have some sort of way to get positive charge to that same side. So how do you do that? That's where ionic motion comes into play. The electrons travel outside the battery through your device to get to the other side, but the ions, positively charged ions, travel through your battery from one side to the other. And therefore you have charge neutrality, but you still get electrons traveling through your device, right? So in order to accomplish this, we go to what I'm gonna call the peanut butter and jelly sandwich structure of a battery. Uh, if you've made a PBJ, you know you've got bread on the top and bottom and you've got peanut butter or jam or something in the middle, right? Batteries are the same way. On the top and bottom, you have something that conducts electricity because you have to have the ability to pull electrons out and put them in on the other side, right? But you cannot have something that conducts electricity in the middle of your battery, right? Otherwise, why would the electrons bother going through your cell phone or your device, right? They're just going to go th right through the battery. So it has to block electrical transport in the middle. On the other hand, you have to have the opposite for your cations, right? They have to be able to travel through the battery from one side to the other. So that jelly or that peanut butter layer that you put in your sandwich, it needs to be electrically resistive, but ionically conductive, right? So here's how it works in a typical lithium ion battery. A typical lithium ion battery for its anode and its cathode, those are the two electrodes on top and bottom. They're not made of the same material. If they were made of the same material, then the cations would have no reason to move from one side to the other. Instead, you want one to be at a high energy and one to be at a low energy. When your battery's all charged up, all of the lithium ions would be in the, in the anode. That's a material that looks like it's graphite typically, right? So graphite's great. It's got these layered structures. You can just cram lithium ions, uh, lithium metal between those layers, right? Then when you discharge your battery and you start to power your cell phone or whatever else, you're getting electrons traveling from that anode through your device and going to the cathode. So where are those electrons coming from? They're coming from the lithium uh, atoms. The lithium atoms give up an electron to become lithium one plus, right? And now you've got lithium cations in the graphite. They're going to travel through the electrolyte layer to get to the cathode material. The cathode material is typically something like a transition metal oxide cobalt oxide, manganese oxide, nickel oxide, these materials have been used. Uh, why do we like those? Because the transition metal oxides can have multiple oxidation states. So in comes that electron. After having gone through your phone, it arrives at the cathode. And now you've got, let's say, a cobalt 4+. plus. It can accept that electron and become cobalt 3+. plus. And in doing so, the lithium also can join that structure. And you end up with lithium cobaltate instead of just cobalt oxide. Right? And then when you want to recharge your phone again or your device, you're going to make this process operate in reverse. Your lithium is going to leave lithium cobaltate. Cobalt 3 plus turns back into cobalt 4 plus. The lithium travels through the electrolyte. Your electron travels through the external circuit. Lithium goes back into the graphite structure and you're back where you started. So it's critical that you've got materials that conduct ions in that middle jelly layer. And that's what we're gonna focus on in today's talk because the materials that have been used in the past are not that great. 
Andrew, do you remember a couple of years ago when you had the Samsung phones that you couldn't even take on airplanes with you? Yeah, that's right. They had all these sort of side reactions and leaks happening within them and they were catching fire. And a lot of that ends up coming down to these um, generally liquid or gel-like electrolytes that they were using. It'd be these like lithium salts, like lithium phosphorus fluorine or lithium uh, boron fluoride, right? And they would dissolve these in organic solvents like ethylene carbonator, dimethyl carbonator, all, you know, these sorts of things. And what ended up happening is you'd have, you know, at the extremes of the battery's operation, you might end up getting the formation of dendritic structures. They look a little bit like Christmas trees. You can, I'll let you look them up, but they essentially, you know, they spread forward and out and eventually um, form a bridge going from the anode to the cathode. And now we have a new connection. So no longer are electrons going to go through the circuit and give us useful power. They're just going to travel across that bridge. So it totally ruins the battery. But these side reactions can also be, you know, it's somewhat explosive. Well, or, think or about it. You've got this. You've well. got this really thin little wire, and you're passing a huge current through a thin wire. Joule heating tells us that the amount of heat you generate is the current times the resistance, the current squared times the resistance. So a really thin wire has a large resistance, and you're putting all that current through it. You're going to heat it up, and you're going to heat it up in the middle of this volatile liquid solution all around it, and it just catches fire. Yeah. So I mean, for a while now, they've been wanting to shift away and try to find better electrolytes. And that's where a lot of the excitement's coming in from with the solid state electrolytes. Companies are really excited because you know, not only can you pack more energy density into these, but they're also, they tolerate uh, extremes a lot better, right? Toyota, I think in their, their press release or whatever, they're like, yeah, you can charge up this car in 10 minutes because at the extremes of charging, right, there's less risk of these reactions occurring. Yeah, the QuantumScape press release talked about, uh, essentially, they have an anode list. There is no graphite on the anode side. They're just going to get lithium metal on that side. And one of the big advantages there is energy density. Some of uh, the anode takes up a large fraction of the cell, but after it, other than providing a hotel for these lithium ions, it's not doing you anything. So if you could just put lithium metal there, you could get much more energy dense batteries. Packing more power into smaller areas means big advances for technology. All right. So the big advance, like we said, from QuantumScape and others, and I'm sure we're going to see lots of more coming, is this idea that we're going to get rid of the liquid electrolyte. And that's tricky because when you think about it in the past, liquid electrolytes, while they are flammable, things in the liquid state are much more mobile, right? And so you could imagine that the ability for ions to travel through a sloshy soup of salts is going to be pretty good. And they do. They've got really good ionic conductivities. They don't resist ionic motion all that much relative to solid materials. In fact, the, the idea of conducting ions through a solid might seem kind of crazy. And for it wasn't even that long ago they were discovered. In the last, say, 200 years, we really kind of discovered these ionic conducting solids. It goes back to our dear friend, Michael Faraday, as in like the Faraday constant is named after this guy. You know, 1839, he was playing around with electrolysis. Electrolysis, right? He was trying to split hydrogen and oxygen from water. And so he was using lots of materials. He was using things like lead fluoride and silver sulfide. And along comes 1921 with his solid silver iodide. And he discovered that if you take it above a certain temperature, 147 Celsius, all of a sudden it switches from one phase to another. And this is accompanied by a 4,000 times increase in the ionic conductivity. So all of a sudden it's conducting these silver ions really, really well. And it wasn't totally understood. Nowadays, we understand a lot better. Andrew, what are the key things for a material to be a good ionic conductor? Right, as you said, when you get into a solid, right, it, it, 
we don't have these traditional pathways like you wouldn't a liquid for these ions to move around so if we want a material to be really good at conducting ions one we first need a high concentration of carriers if you don't have a lot of ions you know your your chances of them actually going across are, are going to be less right it's always kind of like uh because you have so many only a select few of them are actually going to make it all the way across and so the plurality ends up creating a lot more conduction there the next is a high concentration of defects the way that atoms end up moving or these ions end up moving through these solids end up being hopping through various defect states and these are defects like the potential for interstitials right they can occupy sites in between other atoms and move that way or it could be vacancies so you know if there's if you're missing various oxygen sites right now other oxygen ions can hop around using those vacancies there to create motion so you need to have a high concentration of defects that allows ions to move through it the next thing is a low activation energy for hopping right just because there is a vacancy next to me if having to squeeze through all these other atoms to get there or having to make a, a big jump to a change in your um you know confirmation number or breaking a really strong bond maybe you're really tightly held at your last position right yeah so it, it doesn't matter if you if you have that uh, vacancy there, like if the energy to actually go there is so high, it's just not going to be favorable. So for a while, the first two, the high concentration of carriers and the high concentration of defects, those are pretty easy to to predict and manufacture. The third one's a little bit tricky, right? It, it, we have to do these very complex calculations in order to try to elucidate what's happening here and even then like it's still kind of an approximation so but but that being said there are a number of um sort of telltale signs in a material that you will have lower activation energy for hopping a lot of these end up being structural factors that impact uh, the mobility and the activation energy so yeah think of like big open channels right one of my favorite things in my intro to material science classes have materials students plot these crystal structures and you can see that they're not all the same you can have big channels small channels really close pack structures or really open ones and obviously more open and big channels are going to allow for more conduction right mm -hmm. at the same time it, it, it depends on the number of atoms that they're surrounding right if it has to jump from let's say it has a coordination number of like three so only three nearest neighbors right then it has to jump to one with a coordination number of six that ends up being costly from an energy standpoint um so typically they like to transition across faces of crystal structures as opposed to like edges or corners because those tend to involve more, um, more, more changes in the coordination number. Interesting. And so, you know, they come up with a number of strategies to think as well, right? Because we know that when atoms are bonding, right, they have associated energy and that often determines their distance from one another. So if you can find a way to increase the distance of atoms around these, these points where it's already favorable, right, you can kind of widen these channels. And that, that can also increase the, the size and the ease at which uh, ions can diffuse through these little pathways. Another thing that kind of tends to cause problems, and it's one of the big hurdles to implementing these solid uh, electrolytes, is the presence of impurities. So you know, various, you know, we want certain defects in there, but right when you start putting a number of other potentially charged species in there that you don't want, it could potentially shrink or inhibit this motion further. The other thing is, while you want pathways, you want, you also want multi-dimensional pathways, right? Because if you only have a one-dimensional channel that your ions can move through, if that channel gets blocked, then 
there's nothing, you know, there's no other way for them to move around very easily. So you typically want two or three dimensions of mobility within your structure in order to try to maximize the conductivity here. Yeah, you'll see really cool structures where they'll talk about one versus 2D versus even three-dimensional uh, structures. Uh, and then they'll show the conductivity increasing as you increase the dimensionality. The other really big kind of factor here is, you know, when you're, if you're designing some sort of device that you want to function in, let's just say you're making a battery, right? You want it to make sure that your battery is not going to somehow cause damage to the user or the rest of the electronics. But part of instilling atoms with the energy to migrate, right? Because based on laws of diffusion and, and what we know about atoms, we know that they're always kind of moving around a little bit, but that, that like room temperature motion and diffusion isn't enough to provide, you know, driving force or, or enough uh, for ions to, uh, to function in a, in a battery way, in a way that's right. useful for us. So we have to increase the temperature and, and lower the acti activation energy or given the energy to overcome that activation energy rather. And so what ends up happening is we end up having to bring these, uh, these ceramics up to pretty high temperatures at times, uh, you know, four or 500 Kelvin, uh, which can pose some problems. Yeah, at room temperature, even the very best ionic conductors, one that I looked up is this rubidium silver iodide, right? So this really exotic material, part of these so-called advanced superionic conductors. At room temperature, it's very best conductivity, something like 30 Siemens per meter, which is, you know, it's no joke. It's six times more conductive than seawater. Like you would not expect this out of a solid, but we're still way, way less than the electrical conductivity of metals. It's like four orders of magnitude less than even crappy metals. So it's good, but I want you to guys to understand in context that these aren't like amazingly good. And these are even the best of the ionic conductors. Now, as you heat them up, they get better, but still um, don't think that these are gonna be as good as metals because they're not, they're, they're quite a bit lower. Um, now, generally speaking, there have been three classes of materials that have been identified as these high ionic conductivity materials. You've got your halides and calcogenides of silver and copper. Those are kind of like the ones we've just been describing them. In those cases, it's the metal that's disordered. So you get really good conductivity of things like copper or silver in those materials. The second class are your fluorite oxides that have been doped to have a high concentration of oxygen vacancies. We'll talk about those in just a minute. And your third class are big open channel structures, things like apatite, beta alumina, lanthanum molybdate. So let's dive into these with a couple examples. The first one, and maybe the most famous ionic conductor ceramic of all time is YSZ. YSZ stands for yttrium stabilized zirconia. Here's how it works. Zirconium oxide, zirconia, uh, has zirconium in a four plus state and oxygen in a two minus state. There is no conduction happening in this material, but here's the trick, you can dope it. You can, instead of having all zirconium four plus ions in your material, you can swap it out with something that is aliovalent. That means it has a different charge. So what about yttrium? Yttrium is three plus. If you put a three plus on a four plus site, all of a sudden your crystal doesn't have enough positive charge to balance out the negative from your oxygens. So you have two options. You can either try and cram extra positive charge in there, stick some small hydrogens or something in there. That would technically solve your charge neutrality problem, but you're trying to stuff something into a lattice and that never is a good idea because it's expensive. Or the other option, if you are having too much negative charge because you have too little positive charge, why not just remove some of the negative? And that's what happens. You actually form oxygen vacancies. For every two substitutions of yttrium on a zirconium site, you form one oxygen vacancy because remember oxygens come at two minus each. So when you remove one two minus ion, 
you have to have two yttrium three plus on a four plus sites to be charge neutral. So this is great. Since you can control the stoichiometry really easily, right, the ratio of zirconium to yttrium by how you mix this stuff together, you can have a carefully tuned uh, a way of tuning your oxygen vacancies in your material. Now, all this does depend on oxygen partial pressures. So it's if you do it in room air conditions versus in reducing conditions, the vacancies will change. But that's the concept behind it. And those oxygen vacancies do a lot of great things for you. They serve as hopping sites for oxygen to hop through the lattice. So if you have learned about fuel cells in the past, they typically rely on materials like YSZ in them to have oxygen hopping from one side to the other. And then they have a really cool side benefit. Andrew, tell us about transformation toughening because this is just so cool. Yeah, through the addition of yttria, we end up getting this really interesting phenomenon. So uh, you're right, you, you heat these up, you add your, your, your dope into them and they form this metastable tetragonal state. And if you cool it down, ideally it would like to transition to monoclinic which involves a, a volume expansion, right? But it, we, we can end up isolating this metastable tetragonal state, which ends up being very beneficial. So that when a crack propagates through our material, right? A crack's gonna involve some sort of volume expansion. Okay, now we have the conditions where the monoclitic ends up being more favorable and we've added some energy to the system. And so it ends up creating this monoclinic you know, volume expansion as it transitions to this structure, which ends up kind of putting pressure on this crack and preventing it from propagating further. So we end up having this transition that adds toughness to the material, which is something that ceramics are typically lacking in quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, they, they call these materials ceramic steel because they have significantly higher toughness than your traditional ceramic. Yeah, and so now you could have, imagine, right, you have some sort of conductor that's in a, uh, or, or some sort of ionic conduction application that's in a rather like rough and tough sort of situation right imagine going to space right during liftoff there's a lot of vibration in the um in the in in the rocket ship as it's exiting the atmosphere right you wouldn't want your material to get damaged and then not function when you need it the most right so having an ability to try to prevent it and add toughness to the material might be really beneficial for these sorts of applications yeah, think of another benefit. We all better batteries are all about reducing the resistance of electrons in and out of the electrodes, but also of ions across the barrier. One way to do that, which we've been talking about, is higher ionic conductivity, right? Make it more conductive to ions. Another way is just to shrink that distance, make it so it doesn't have to travel as far. So make that membrane really, really thin, and you made a better battery. But when you make it thin, you run the risk of it breaking unless you've got a toughened material like YSE. So really, really cool material, which is why I think that YSC is the first one that we ought to talk about when it comes to fast ion conducting ceramics, because it has done so much. We'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to some applications, but there's lots of variations available of YSC. So um, they all kind of operate on the same theme. So there's cerium oxide and you can dope it with gadolinium that gives you CGO. You can take this bismuth vanadium oxide and dope it with copper and you get this Bicuvox material. You can take uh, lanthanum, strontium, gallium, magnesium oxide. This is LSGM. All of these are basically the same thing. In every one of these cases, you're introducing oxygen vacancies through aliovalent doping, and they just get better and better as you heat them up. So they're typically operated at higher and higher temperatures. You're talking about maybe like the six to 800 degrees Celsius regime where you start getting conductivities that are pretty good. Okay, our next material, uh, which I'm psyched about because I've done a lot of research on this one in my own research group, you can read our papers, maybe I'll put a few in our show notes, is BASE, 
which stands for beta alumina solid electrolyte. So beta alumina is a really interesting material. It was discovered by the Ford Motor Company, actually. They were in search of a material, uh, a device to be able to store uh, charge in electric vehicles. They were looking at sodium sulfur batteries, which is not the lithium ion batteries that are typically used today, but they needed something that was going to be able to conduct not lithium, but sodium, right? And in this structure, that's what you have. So the formula is typically Na2O with some number of alumina groups to it, Al2O3. You've got beta alumina, which is a one to 11 ratio. So one Na2O for every 11 Al2O3s, but then you can have this beta double prime, right? Phase, which is a one to five ratio. And the way to think of this structure is it has these blocks of what look like spinel. And if you're familiar with spinel, it's a very close packed structure with not a lot of room to get in and out. Um, so you don't get good conduction in the spinel block, but between those blocks of spinels, you stack those blocks vertically, there's gaps between that have really good open channels for getting your sodium to travel through those channels. So the difference between beta alumina and beta double prime aluminum is just how many of those channels you have relative to how many big blocks of spinel. Beta double prime has more channels, so it's not surprisingly more conductive, right? So that's this material. It has lots of really cool applications where you want sodium ion conduction, and it again relies on channel structures. All right, Andrew, why don't you talk about LLZO? Right, this is a really popular one recently, especially given the news of all these solid, uh, these solid electrolyte batteries, right? LLZO, lithium lanthanum zirconium oxide. Uh, this forms the garnet structure, which I'll, I'll let you Google yourself. But what's <laughs> cool about garnets is they're capable of accommodating an, a lot of excess lithium cations beyond what would normally be found in your typical structure. So this ends up being a lot of, of high value for total conductivity, right? And the other great thing is that they have both great thermal and electrochemical resistance, which means that you're not, you're unlikely to see all these degradation mechanisms that typically plague uh, batteries. And so these make them really ideal candidates for solid state batteries. And although, you know, quantum scape is keeping a lot of stuff under wraps, a number of the press reports have stated that uh, LLZO is believed to be the electrolyte that they're using. And oh, which really? that wouldn't really surprise me. Yeah, mm -hmm. it wouldn't surprise me, but I was, I was curious what electrolyte they had used. I hadn't seen anything yet. Yeah, I'm sure they're trying to keep it under wraps, but that's what a number of people are believe is, is happening okay. there. It's cool. If you've seen the press release, they've shown that it can bend, like they are flexing that thing. So they're either making that really thin or I don't know how they're achieving that sort of flexibility. And it's pretty exciting. I'll be very curious to see that once they're actually available and people can tear them open and see what's inside of it. It'll be cool stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see the next couple of years there. The next one that people are really excited about is uh, Nasacon. So this is a sodium super ionic conductor. That's what it stands for. So you have sodium with some uh, you know, different amounts of zirconium, silicon, phosphorus, and, and then you know oxygen. And so these are able to achieve very high ionic conductivities on the order of uh, 10 to the negative third sorry, on the order of 10 to the negative third uh, Siemens per centimeter, which rival those of even liquid electrolytes. So we're getting up there to be much more competitive what has been traditionally used. And so this is caused by the hopping of sodium ions among different interstitial sites within that crystal lattice. And so they characterized the crystal structure of this Nasacon a little while, well, actually a long time ago in 1968, so it's essentially you have this covalent network of zirconia octahedra and then phosphate or silica tetrahedra, and they share common corners, right? So I told you about having 
you know, wanting to transition across faces. Well, having tetrahedra provides a number of faces that make it easier for these transitions. So there's less structural inhibitors there. And so it makes it so that sodium ions between all these interstitial sites have a lot of channels by which they can move. And so there are a number of problems with lithium, a lot of them being the defects and as well as energy density. So there's a lot of research and interest in sodium batteries, uh, sodium ion batteries. And so this is a potentially good, you know, ionic conductor for that. Okay, then the last ionic conductor superstar that we're going to talk about in this episode is Natheon. Now, it is critically different than the three that we've talked about before. This one in two ways. First off, it is not a ceramic. It's a polymer. And second off, it doesn't conduct um, lithium or sodium or oxygen. It conducts hydrogen, right? So how it works, Nathan, it's the brand name for a sulfonated tetrafluoroethylene-based fluor polymer. So think the backbone looks a little bit like Teflon, but they've modified it a fair bit. They've added these sulfonated groups and they've done some other things to it. It was developed in the 60s by Walter Grott at DuPont. DuPont doing good things for us there. Um, so this is a synthetic polymer that has ionic properties, first of its kind. Now this, now, nowadays, we call these materials ionomers. And what's cool, like I said, is that this actually is a proton conductor. And so it allows us to have new devices, things like proton exchange membranes, right? Uh, the big advantage of these is that they can operate at a much lower temperature than the YSC or LSGM or oxide conducting materials that we talked about previously. They don't have to be up there at 800 degrees Celsius. They can come way down. And when you bring down operating temperature, you bring down a lot of other problems associated with thermal expansion or you know corrosion, things that you don't want to deal with. And that's why, unsurprisingly, these are attractive for applications like fuel cell vehicles. The Toyota Mirai, for example, is the first mass-produced hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. Um, and it relies on a polymer electrolyte membrane based off of Napheon, right? Uh, now, of course, the challenge here is cost. Andrew, I see this number you've got here. This seems crazy to me. Is that number right? Yeah, the real challenge of these materials is their cost, right? Some reports uh, have estimated, and we're not really sure the, the uh, validity of some of these, but you know, they estimate that the fuel cell stack itself costs almost a third of the entire vehicle. Uh, now this is projected to decrease as we discover new materials and we ramp up you know manufacturing but they remain quite expensive in order to achieve this so that's that's still a major hurdle to overcome and before we're going to see any sort of widespread adoption right this toyota mirai costs like sixty thousand dollars which is relatively prohibitive and i'm sure quite a bit of that is coming from its uh its fuel cells that it's using now, what I find interesting is, you know, my last PhD student that graduated last year, Alex, he worked on this material a lot. Um, and there is still a lot of unknown, you know, it, uh, about this material and how mechanism, the mechanism of conduction, it's tricky. There's been a lot of different uh, theories proposed about how it conducts protons. But one key thing seems to be the level of hydration. So in this floor polymer with these sulfonate groups, you can hydrate it. You can add water in the form of steam or just having humid environments, right? And the water is going to go to these hydrophilic sulfonate groups and sort of cluster around them. As they cluster around them, these things can arrange themselves in different structures. So there's been lots of different uh, proposed mechanisms of these interconnected networks of these hydrophilic domains. Um, it's unclear exactly which one, in my mind, it's unclear which one is the correct method, but that does seem to be the key for forming conduction is that you have these interconnected network of hydrophilic domains and you get the, uh, you get the water molecules 
and OH groups hopping through these domains. And that seems to be key to its conduction. So definitely a hot area of research still and something that's practically relevant because fuel cell vehicles are an interesting competitor to, uh, to battery technology. All right, this episode is brought to you by the American Ceramic Society Energy Materials and Systems Division. Um, one thing I want to point out about this society and this one thing I want to point out about the, this division in the society is that they hold some really great conferences. They've got one coming up really soon. They have the Materials Challenges in Alternative and Renewable Energy, MCARE, happening in 2021. And that's happening at the same time or in conjunction with the fourth annual Energy Harvesting Society meeting, EHS 2021. So these will take place in July, July 18th to the 23rd of 2021. Come on, vaccine. Better be ready. This would be a good one to go to. Abstracts are due by February 3rd. So by the time this episode comes out, you will have a month to get your abstract in. Just Google MCARE 2021 or EHS 2021. It'll be in the show notes as well. I think that these would be really cool conferences to think about attending, right? These are big global forums. They bring in leading experts from both universities, industry research, labs, government agencies to talk about some of the big problems that we face in the energy sector in, with regards to alternative renewable energy and the role that ceramics are going to play in that area. And then the other one with the energy harvesting one, they talk about things in the nitty gritty of piezoelectrics, photovoltaics, supercapacitors, batteries, fuel cells, the things we've been talking about in this uh, episode are all sort of the things that you'd see at that conference. So I think you should check it out. I think it's going to be really worthwhile. This month's episode is also sponsored by Matt Match. Now, if you've listened to the show before, you've heard us talk about them, right? It's a company that are passionate about material science, and their goal is to help connect materials engineers with providers and suppliers, right? Their platform is used by over a million engineers each year, and searching for that perfect material is absolutely free. But, you know, getting down to it, real talk, you go on some site like Signal Altrich, and it takes like a minute for your search <laughs> results to actually populate. Like, and then you accidentally click the wrong one, and then it's you have to wait like another thing there. There's just so much latency there just to try to find the material you're looking for. And sometimes if you're just trying to explore, it's just a headache. Their site is really quick, really select. There's tons of all these different filters. You can compare the properties of a bunch of materials, and you can you know you have direct access to the supplier, so you can contact them and figure out what you want to do with that. It's a really great platform and it's much better than a lot of these other ones. At the very least, go there and try it out for the experience of not having to wait forever for results to load. Yeah, you will not be disappointed. Uh, and our last sponsor of today's episode is Materials Today. Our podcast has been sponsored by Materials Today for some time. Uh, we encourage you to go and check out materialstoday.com or elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. We think that they do some really cool things at that journal. And look, uh, Materials Today is one of certainly the highest impact journals out there for material science. They don't just publish random odds and ends studies. I think they publish really impactful things that impact both the science and engineering of new materials. So things like better batteries are the exact sort of thing that they would publish in materials today. So check them out. I think that you'll like that journal. Okay, we are back from the break, and we started this episode talking about uh, 
batteries and how ionic conduction is related to them and how it's used in them and how it's transforming the battery landscape. But now we want to talk about some of the other applications of these ionic conducting ceramics, because it's not just batteries and the future is quite exciting. We mentioned the Toyota Mirai and how it uses fuel cells for its power source. Utilizing a redox reaction, we're able to facilitate the movement of protons, hydrogen ions, across a membrane, where they eventually then recombine with oxygen to create water. So these are really exciting, right? We can generate electricity, and our only byproduct is water, which is you know, qu quite renewable and ends up have, helping us potentially cut down on a lot of pollution that we have, right? It operates on a similar system to a battery. Uh, through the creation of this ion, we separate an electron from the hydrogen and it travels through our circuit where we can do useful work. And then it eventually recombines and we get our charge neutrality that we're after and we get our energy. The, the state-of-the-art materials are like the ones we've talked about. They are doped versions of cerium oxide and zirconium oxide that allow you to get lots of oxygen uh, vacancies. Honestly, I think that's fine what you just said. Okay. Um, you know, what I think is cool about fuel cells, like obviously their operation is exciting, getting electricity from hydrogen and oxygen, but you could also take these things and you can run them in reverse, right? If you run them in reverse, you're providing the electrical potential, right? Difference to take water and split it into hydrogen and oxygen. So obviously you have to have something that does this if you're gonna have a, a hydrogen economy. But what I think is really neat about this and pretty exciting for the future is the problem with renewables is that they're just so intermittent, right? I've got solar panels in my house and they don't do me a lot of good because they produce power in the middle of the day, but I need power in the morning and the evening. So I need a way to store that power. And what if you had a material that had an electrolyzer that could take water and during the middle of the day, your solar panels could be produced, providing electricity to split that water into right, hydrogen and oxygen. And then in the morning and the evening, you had a fuel cell running that thing in backwards and you could get power back out of it. So it's a way to store renewable energy um, in a pretty exciting way. Now it's still expensive and to make it work great, you still need catalysts, right? So it's not like this is a solved problem, but the potential is there for fuel cells and electrolyzers to work in tandem for big grid scale energy storage. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of combining them is always a really cool idea. A lot of when we talk about all these interesting technologies, we always talk about them kind of in an isolated state, like, oh, solar powers or solar panels are cooler, batteries are cooler, fuel cells. But there is a lot that could be gained by combining them and utilizing all their unique properties and advantages yeah. uh, in, in great and creative ways. So I think the next one is uh, this one kind of falls in a similar line it are these um, you know, membranes that we can use to isolate oxygen right? Like, you know, we, we have a number of pollutants in the air and in many industrial applications need very pure oxygen in order, in order, in order to function or within their processes, or even, you know, well, just a think lot of, of COVID, are, right? Yeah, yeah. With COVID and, other, and anybody who's been on oxygen, you put those little oxygen tubes up to your nose and it can be life-saving, but where's that coming from? <laughs> you have to separate that oxygen from the 78% of nitrogen that's in the air. So you need an oxygen conducting membrane. Yeah, right. And the one that they typically use, well, there's a number of them, um, but the one that's kind of really popular is like uh, Bicuvox, or I don't know how, what, how you pronounce all these acronyms, but essentially bismuth, copper, vanadium oxide. Uh, the other really popular one is BSCF, which is barium, uh, strontium, cobalt, iron oxide. Okay. And um, <laughs> You know, my uh, first job was at Ceramitech. I was an intern there and Ceramitech, high-tech ceramics, right? 
I'd say like more than half of the business, certainly more than half the people I knew there worked on oxygen ion separation for air gas, right? So when those giant air cylinder companies sell these different gases, they rely on oxygen membranes to do the separation, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. A bunch of other people made NASICON, right? If you have, I think it was radioactive, radioactides, they were actually separating nuclear waste out. Salt was like a big component of that waste, but it wasn't radioactive itself. So if they could pull the salt out with a NASICON membrane, they could reduce the volume of the radioactive waste necessary, right? Was, was I think the idea behind it. So you can just do so much with these oxygen ion with these with these fast ionic conducting ceramic materials uh which is not surprising why we're coming up with so many cool applications oh yeah like a lot of this relies on controlling the size of these defects right for something to be an interstitial right in order for it to move it has to pass through something so if you want to filter something right different atoms have different sizes you just control the size of these defects and the type of defects and then yeah, you can exactly. create filters pretty rad it's it's remarkable to me that this actually works. Um, not that it's easy, right? Anybody who's actually worked in this field will tell you it's complicated, but that it's possible at all is pretty exciting. Um, the last thing we wanna say is sensors, right? If you have a vehicle that has, um, what do they call it? Like DFI, uh, EFI Live. EFI Live in a vehicle is, stands for electronic fuel injection live, meaning in real time, it's tuning the ratio for your, your fuel injection of fuel to air, right? You want that ratio to be just right. So it's providing the optimal amount of fuel and just the right amount of oxygen to burn. You don't want it to have excess oxygen, right? Or not enough oxygen, right? So you want to tune it just right. And the way they do that is by having an oxygen sensor in the effluent coming out of your motor. So in the tailpipe, they're actually probing it in real time and measuring the oxygen levels so that you know if you're burning up the exact right amount of air with your fuel, which would be ideal, right? So how do you do that? You have an, yet another ionic conductor. You have something that conducts oxygen, YSZ typically, it travels through this thing. And in doing so, it's going to have redox reactions. It's a tiny little battery, right? You're gonna measure the voltage of that tiny little battery in your sensor. And that will tell you the oxygen levels in your tailpipe. And then you can tune that in real time based off of that itty bitty tiny little voltage. So the things they can do with sensors are just bonkers. And so many of them rely on ionic conduction. Yeah, and these things are crazy sensitive, right? They make adjustments in fractions of a second. Um... And, and that's really only possible because of how precise these uh, conductors can get. Yeah, pretty incredible. So Andrew, what's, what does the future hold for ionic conducting materials? So the big shift right now is generally towards miniaturization and thin films, right? Like the shorter our distance, the cross section of this membrane or this electrolyte, the more conduction and the faster we can get, right? But what we also know is that you know, surfaces behave a little bit differently than bulk. And so as we get smaller, now all these new properties that weren't present when we were in the bulk phase are now cropping up. And so it brings about a lot of new challenges. Um, at the same time, there's this really big push towards the internet of things, right? All these different smart devices and technologies integrated into every sort of aspect of life uh, in order to provide better data and better quality of life. But to do that, we have to power these things somehow, right? There's a lot of different ways that they're trying to approach this, but the ability to shrink down batteries and, and power sources is a big deal for these and main, making sure that they're energy dense enough as well. So being able to create, you know, tiny you know, fuel cells and batteries that are using ionic conduction is essential. And these ionic, these solid membranes, um, sorry, these solid electrolytes are, are crucial for enabling that just because they're safer, they're, they're, they're less, they're more resistant to 
uh, degradation or these side reactions that totally destroy um, you know, our typical liquid electrolytes. And so this is a big area of research. The other one is these mixed ionic and electronic conducting membranes. So now, not only are we conducting ions, but we can also conduct electrons. And these are typically fluorites or perovskites in structure. And they can be single or multi-phase. So in a single phase, right, it's just the one uniform crystal structure throughout it. And so this crystal structure alone conducts ions. It has all these pathways through it. And it has the, the requisite energy structure to conduct electrons as well. However, yeah, they can I've also do those... multi-phase. Oh. oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So uh, they can also do multi-phase. So they'll have one material that conducts ions really well, and then another that conducts electrons really well. So it becomes kind of this heterogeneous structure. And, um, you know, these are really useful in, let's just say, fuel cells, right? Once the hydrogen ions move through, they need to recombine yeah. with, with oxygen and the electron that comes in. So rather than trying to have two materials where this happens, just put it in one material where you can facilitate this both. And that allows yeah. you to one, make it probably more efficient and two, cut down on the size. Yep. That's what I was going to say. I've seen them used as on the electrodes of things like fuel cells. Um, something else I think that is really cool. And we didn't have the time to get into in today's episode is liquid metal batteries. There's a guy named Daniel Sadaway at MIT and do yourself a favor and check out his, I'm sure he's given a Ted talk or something. Look him up on YouTube. He's first off an amazing speaker, but his technology is so cool. He makes batteries out of totally molten metals. So you take different metals that are immiscible with one another and you melt them. They will phase separate out due to differences in density. And now when you cycle your battery, it has a built-in way to prevent the damage that builds up in your traditional battery because each cycle of charge and discharge sort of destroys and creates a new interface in these materials. So it prevents the degradation that ruins normal materials and is a really cool potential for grid scale storage, but again, has some bugs to work out. Okay. With that said, we are so excited that you've joined us as listeners these last two years, and we are pumped to bring you a whole nother year of really exciting content. We want to throw out uh, some thank yous to the people that make the show possible. We've got some awesome production assistants and co-hosts. We've got uh, Ramsey Issa and Kathy Liu, who've done some great work and have lots of cool things planned for the new year. But we also have the musicians Colobite and Alphabot, who have allowed us to bring some awesome sounds to this uh, podcast. And we also have a new team member, Gia Doan from Vietnam, who is actually providing transcription services. We're going to start at our older episodes and work our way forwards, but we hope to actually offer transcribed versions of our episodes so it'll be easier to go back and find that topic that we were talking about if you don't want to listen to the whole thing again. Um, as always, we would love it if you would drop us a note and tell us what should be some of the future episodes that we should cover. Or if you have an idea for a cool guest, get in touch with us. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram with the at materialism.podcast. We would love to hear your suggestions. And then last thing, as we start year three, it would be enormously helpful for us if you would leave us a review iTunes reviews are the coin of the realm in the podcast world. They help us get more visible to more ears, which we think will help us grow as a podcast. So we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. And with that said, thank you so much. And a happy 2021. May it be much better than the last year. We'll catch you guys next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, 
the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.